If you would turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. Today we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. And as you're, as you're turning there, I just I want to say that I am and have been deeply convicted this week as I have studied and prepared for the sermon. And so I preach this morning, um, not merely to you, but to me. Maybe, maybe it's that way every time I preach. I think it is. I think Randy would agree that, that, that first I'm preaching to myself um, and, then, and then to you as well. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Um, James, yet again, we find him yet again confronting sin in the church. And as, as the previous verses in his letter up to this point um, has been, so is this passage practical. It's dealing with sin and the church and the lives of the believers of the church, professing believers, and it's something that all of us have dealt with, are dealing with, will deal with. So again, it's extremely practical for us here and now, today. Um, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. It says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. And you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. I want to give you an outline of this passage. I had intended on providing an outline this morning, but I left it at home. So I will just give you a brief outline of, of five, five major points, each corresponding with the five verses in this passage. And the first one is this. In this text, God through James in verse 13 exposes error. In verse 14, he expresses reality. Verse 15, he enjoins, which means to command, he enjoins correct thinking. Verse 16, he explains error as evil. And then in verse 17, he expands application. I'm going to give you that one more time. I'll go a little faster. He exposes error, verse 13. Verse 14, he expresses reality. In verse 15, he enjoins correct thinking. 16, he explains error as evil. And then again in 17, he expands application. Verse 13 of James chapter 4. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. This quote that James is, is giving here, it's, it's saying, here's the plan. We're going to go to this city. We're going to make some money. We're going to set up business, right? After we make some money, we're done with that city. We're going to move on to the next city, and then we're going to do the same thing, and we're going to the next, and then the next, and the next, and the next, year after year. 
after year. It sounds like a good business plan, doesn't it? We're going to go here and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to make some money. That's what our business is, 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 is for. And then we'll just continue doing that. In this passage, James is not just simply addressing the individual who is making plans for his or her business. It appears that that might be the case with this statement. Many commentaries focus on this fact that James is is primarily addressing individuals engaged in business and their attitudes as they're engaged in business. But James here, and we'll see this as, we'll unpack this as we move through the text, he is addressing an attitude and he is addressing an issue of the heart that all of us deal with. If he was simply addressing individuals engaged in business, there would be many of us saying, well, it's great because this text doesn't apply to me because I'm not going to that city. and I really don't care about making a dollar in this business or that business, so it doesn't apply. But it does apply because, again, as we unpeel, unpack, if you will, the layers and the levels here, we're going to find out that it's not about an individual engaged in business, but it's about us and our thinking and in our planning in life. Now, is this an issue of stewardship that James is addressing? Well, in part, I think it is an issue of stewardship, right? Now, we know that man is responsible, right? We are responsible to God um, with what we have and what we do with what we have. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look briefly at the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, verse 14 through 30. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. And see, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more, 
For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master was Christ, and, and, and those with the talents represent us. We are responsible. God is sovereign, and that God's sovereignty yet does not negate our responsibility. We are expected to be faithful and to be fruitful. God actually expects us to make plans. doesn't mean that we have any guarantees in that, but yet he does expect us to be responsible in regards to that. So in this passage, James, right, he says again, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. We'll spend a year there. We'll engage in business. We'll make a profit. He isn't just simply addressing, hey, as believers, you're to be responsible. Because we could look at this phrase and we could say, hey, wait, well, that sounds good, right? I mean, the guy's making plans. As believers, we're to be responsible, right? We're to be good stewards, right? We're to be faithful. We're to be fruitful. So it's okay to say, hey, we're going to go do this or we're going to go do that. However, there's something missing in this statement. The phrase is actually representative of the individual's heart. And as we move through these verses, we'll see the attitude of the heart behind the phrase in verse um, 13. See, a Christian can be wealthy, can be profitable, can have a good balance sheet, can have a good business plan like this one to go do this, to go do that, right? And again, maybe not even business, maybe in our own personal lives, we have these plans, right? And on the outside, they look good. It's what we should be doing, right? We should buy a house maybe, right? Or we should pay off our debt, we should do this and we should do that. And from the outside, it looks good, okay? But just because we have a good plan, an appealing plan, right, it doesn't mean that we're actually being a good steward. I've often said that it's not about what you have. It's what you do with what you have. But actually concerning stewardship, the statement has to be taken one level further than that. It's also why or how You do what you do. It's why you do what you do with what you have. So the issue in verse 13, this statement, it's the why behind it. It's the heart behind that statement. Hey, we're going to go do this and we're going to go do that. James exposes two errors in verse 13. The first error is this. It's the error of presumption. Presumption is an attitude or belief dictated by probability. You see, I figure my track record with waking up in the morning is pretty good. And I've woken up every morning for almost 34 years of my life. So based on probability, I expect to wake up tomorrow morning, right? Figure the uh, average lifespan for a white male in North America is 75.7 years. So based on that probability, I expect to live 75.7 years. And I live my life with that expectation. 
that's being presumptuous based on, again, expectation, based on probability, making decisions based on those things. Those are presumptuous decisions. I expect it. But the question is, should I? Should you? Should we expect these things to be so just because they were so yesterday or because they have been so in someone else's life? See, we don't know what tomorrow will bring and we shouldn't live our lives as, as though we do. See, we live in such a way that we think we have guarantees in life. Right? And we do have some guarantees in life, but how do we know what our guarantees in life are? The only guarantees we have in life are the guarantees found in Scripture, the promises that God gives us in Scripture. Those are the only guarantees that we have. I have no guarantee that my car will start when I go out and, and try to start it. I've probably started it thousands of times, and it's always started. Right? But there is absolutely no guarantee. I have no guarantee that when I go home today that my house will not be a, a, a pile of ashes, right? I have no guarantee that when I show up for work later this week that I'll still have a job, right? I have no guarantee that I'll have another day, another week, another month, another year. But, but we live our lives as though we have those guarantees. We make our plans for life as though we have those guarantees. They're, they're owed us. It's presumption. That is the error of presumption. And in part, James is addressing that error. The individual who said, hey, today, tomorrow, we'll go to this city. We'll make a profit, right? Once we're done making a profit there, we'll move on to the next city. We'll make a profit there. And then so on and so forth. And in 50 years from now, we'll have a whole bunch of money. Or we'll have this, or we'll have this, or we'll do that, or we'll do that. And we'll retire. That's being presumptuous. That's presuming. That's assuming that, that that's going to happen and it's going to happen that way because it's happened that way for us in the past. It's happened that way for other people. And well, let's just face it, I deserve it. The second error that James addresses in, in verse 13 is the error of worldly pursuits. See, this person making the statement is being driven this presumption, if you will, is being driven by this person's worldly desires. And we could move that out of the realm of business. Any of your plans, any of our plans. If our planning, if the presumptions in our planning are being driven by our worldly desires, our worldly pleasures, right, then we would clearly fit within this passage that James is, is addressing. Turn with you to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, um, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So the person that James is addressing in chapter 13, actually, sorry, verse 13, actually, the persons, people that James is addressing in this passage, 13 through 17, are those whose hearts at one time, another, now, maybe in the future, are focused on treasures of this world. Not necessarily something that's, that's tangible, 
but even pleasures of this world. So the heart of the person that James is addressing here again is focused on worldly things, is being motivated by worldly things. Now these errors, this presumption, this pursuit of worldly desires, pleasures, treasures, they amount to practical atheism or Christian atheism. I know that that's somewhat of a paradox, isn't it? But when we proclaim with our mouths and yet we deny with our lifestyle, okay, that is practical atheism. We confess God here and then yet we completely deny him over here. It's practical atheism. It's a denial by action, by deed, by works. At times, by words, a denial of God. Now, in verse 14 of, of chapter 4, he says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. He says, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So, in verse 14, James expresses reality. Really, the statement that he gives, I mean, it's a, it's a gut punch. It is for me. I think for many of us it probably is. It's definitely a reality check. But I think for most we would find this really as just a, a gut punch. We don't know what the next moment holds. Again, there's no guarantee aside from what God promises us in Scripture. There's no guarantees in life. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, we find the story, if you will, of the parable of the, the rich fool who lived his life as though he was guaranteed a tomorrow. Chapter 12 of Luke, verse 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. Similar statement to what we find in verse 13, right? We're going to go into this city, and we're going to make a profit, right? And we'll go into the next, and we'll do it again. Again, sounds like good planning. Verse 19. And then I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. He's being presumptuous, right? I've got time. I'm set. But God said to him, you fool, spare not your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. And I know in part that the linchpin of this passage is, is verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. But in this passage, we also see the example of what James is talking about and the reality of what James is talking about in verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. 
He says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Now, I'm not sure that most believers have a good grasp on this truth. I think we err in our thinking. I think often that we think, well, because we're Christians, that God's going to grant us a good life. All right, that whatever we desire, as long as it's not sinful, I mean, we can desire things, we can pursue things, and we can pursue things and desire things and want things and plan for things that aren't necessarily sin. And as long as we do that, then, then God's going to grant that. Now, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in this spot, in this, this example that I'm about to give. I've found myself here numerous times. Now, I want to give some historical examples first, because looking back, we can see God completely working in it. And now we can say with the benefit of time, ah, we understand what God was doing there. We see that what God was doing was actually for his glory and for the good of not just the individual involved, but, but those around him and those to come. So as I was preparing, I was, I was thinking about... Um, I was thinking about Eric Little. You guys may or may not have heard of him or know him. He was a, a Scottish Olympian slash missionary right, uh, to China, um, 1920-ish to 1945, I think, was kind of when he, he served in China during World War II. Um, I think it was in the mid-late 40s, um, 45, somewhere in there, he um, was imprisoned, if you will, in a Japanese internment camp in, in China. He actually had the opportunity to, to leave that internment camp. He stayed because he knew that's where God had wanted him to continue to minister. And he ended up dying, died of a brain tumor. Had he taken that opportunity to leave, it's quite possible that, that maybe he could have sought medical treatment and they could have healed him. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But upon hearing that story, kind of, or thinking about that, I transport myself back to, say, 1945 when he died. And I would have thought, knowing me, I would have thought, I don't get it. I mean, here this guy was a missionary. He gave up worldly fame. I mean, this, this Olympian, he could have pursued that. He still, to this day, is considered like Scotland's greatest athlete, okay? I mean, he, he, he abandoned all of that for you, God. Why? Why would, why would you allow him to, to die. Now, that's me thinking back in like 1945. I don't get it. Why would you permit this? Because he was a, he was a godly man. You know, I mean, he, he had it together. You know, why would you, why would you do that? Now, with the benefit of time, we can look back and we can say, hey, wait a minute. I mean, I don't want to say his legacy, okay? But the legacy that he left, which was Christ, still exists today, okay? I mean, in China, communist China, where the, the place of the internment camp was, there is a memorial to Eric Little, this great missionary to China. And as a result of that, the gospel is still going forward today in China. So looking back, we can say, ah, oh, we see what God was doing. It was for his glory and Eric Little's good. I was again thinking about the missionaries, Nate St. Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, Right? Those who were killed in South America as they were seeking to advance the gospel to these remote tribes. 
And again, looking back today, we find ourselves saying, oh, we know why God did that. I mean, it's actually because God allowed them to be murdered that the gospel went forward in a great way to these people. You know, so God completely used that for his glory for the good of his children, our good here today. But when I transport myself back to the time that they were murdered, I, I find myself saying, I don't get it, right? Again, because I have this attitude of expectation. Why would God, why would God do that? I mean, why would he allow these men who have given up everything material to move to the remotest parts of the world to advance the gospel? Why would God allow them to suffer? Why would God allow them to, to die as they did? What about people we've known? I mean, there was a missionary that we knew um, when we were uh, in high school, my wife and I, that our church supported and who had, gotten, who had gotten ill. Now, God did heal him, but I can remember when, when news uh, was, was, was brought that the man had contracted this disease, I can remember thinking to myself, again, I don't get it. Why, why would you do this, God? This doesn't, this doesn't make sense. I mean, here this guy is, is he's your missionary. I mean, he gave up everything that this world has to offer for you, and then you allow him to get sick. Again, I think this comes back to this entitlement mentality that we have or that we struggle with that where we think that because we're Christians, right, because we, we're, we're not like maybe actively engaged in unrepentant sin, that God's going to bless us and, and give us these great things and allow us to live long and to do this or to do that or to go into this city and to make a profit and then we're done going to the next. See, we can be assured of that whatever happens happens in accordance with God's will. Now, there is, and I don't want to get too far into this, but there is his decreed will, okay? And then there is also his permissive will where God allows things to happen. Bad things, good things, bad things, evil things, sin, and he allows it to happen, right? For, again, his glory for our good. And then concerning his decreed will, that's what we find, especially here in scripture, where it explicitly proclaims this is God's will, or implicitly through other imperatives and other directives that this is God's will as well. But what we can be assured of is that whatever happens, happens according to God's will, and it happens for God's glory and for our good. Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Whatever happens via God's decreed will or his permissive will happens for God's glory. And not only does it happen for God's glory, but we also know that it happens for our good. Romans 8 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Not only do we not know what our lives will be like tomorrow, but he says you are just a 
vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now, this isn't an insult. He's not addressing the importance of personhood, okay? He's not devaluing life in this statement, right? We know that we have value in life, and we know that our value comes from Christ. And in saying that you are just a vapor, your translation might say you are a mist, okay? I'm not sure that mist captures the essence of what he's trying to say accurately, and I'm not sure vapor does either, okay? I think the best imagery that I could give you, which ultimately comes from Scripture, and we'll look at that momentarily, that truly captures the essence of what James is trying to say is that your life is but a breath. Now, we had a cold morning this morning. I don't know if you went outside, and, and as you were walking to your car, maybe you saw a little bit of your, your breath. You know? I know some mornings it's cold, and you can take a breath, and, and you almost see like this smoke trailing from your mouth, right? What about those mornings you go outside, you're doing something, you're walking to the car, and you stop and you pause and you say, hey, wait a minute. I don't know why I do this. Maybe it's just me. But you say, I think I saw my breath. And so you sit there. I did that this morning. And I sit there and I'm, and I'm breathing. And, and, and I had to breathe a couple times to see it, you know. And then finally I saw it. And as soon as I saw it, it, it was gone. That's what James is saying. That, that breath, that breath that you almost didn't even see. And then when you saw it, it was too late because it was already gone. That's your life. He's referring to the brevity and the transitory nature of life. Turn with me to Job. Job chapter 7. Job, through his many trials, realizes this truth. Verses 6 through 7 of chapter 7, he says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but breath. My eyes will not again see good. And then Job 9, 25 through 26, again, he says, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, and they see no good, and they slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. Psalms, one chapter to the right, Psalms, Psalm 39. In Psalm 39, verse 5 and 11, David says, Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths. My lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. And in verse 11, he says, With reproves you chasten a man for iniquity, and you consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Psalm 89 verse 47. It says, remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. And then in Psalm 90, verses 5 and 6 and verse 10. You have swept them away like a flood, and they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew, Toward evening it fades and withers away. Verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow for soon it is gone and we all fly away. The reality of the brevity and transitory of nature of life should force us as Christians to draw near to God. 
I know that there are some believers who are more aware, acutely aware of this truth than others. I think for many of us, we don't want to be aware. I think we're blissfully happy and our presumptuous sins of assuming we have tomorrow or assuming our plans for tomorrow will come to fruition, even though God may have different plans for our tomorrow. But our knowing this, that our life is but a breath, our knowing this should result in our having him, having Christ as the center of our lives. Ultimately, it's Christ. It's God, right? He should be our reason for doing everything. That, in part, is what was missing in verse 13. I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do that. What was missing from that statement was Christ. If Christ allows me, I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to go do that. 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you should do all for the glory of God. To this person, to us, to those whom James is addressing here, maybe it is you, maybe it will be you, maybe it was you, right? That planning, that presumptuous planning wasn't being done for the glory of God. So I think sometimes we, we like to look back on our actions and we like to say, well, did that glorify God? You know, I mean, we, we did this and we did that and now I'm going to evaluate what I did and, and I'm going to determine as to whether or not it was glorifying to God or it wasn't. Now, we should do that, okay? Because if, if we've done something in the past that wasn't glorifying to God, we should examine that, right? And upon discovering that, wait a minute, that was sin because we didn't glorify God, well, we should repent from that, okay? So we should look back. We also need to look forward in our planning. I want to do this. Is that going to glorify God? I would like to go to that town and make a profit. I would like to go to Oklahoma City on Monday and, and, and go to Sam's Club and then go eat at Chick-fil-A or whatever it is you're going to do. Is that going to glorify God if I do that? Or better yet, what can I do on Monday that glorifies God. Again, that's what was missing. That's what is missing from the plans of the person in verse 13. What can I do that's going to glorify God with this? Is this going to glorify God if I do that? Because that's what I want to do is I want to glorify God in, in doing that. I heard a story from Alistair Begg in one of his sermons several months back. And the story was, it was a true story. He was talking about someone in his, his church um, a businessman who was on a business trip with other men in his company. And they had, uh, on this business trip, they had invited this man um, to a gentleman's club. And the man declined. He said, no, I'm, and that's not, sorry, that's not for me. I'm not going to this, this, that, that place. And of course, they pressed the issue. Come on, yeah, we want you to go. You need to come. Yeah, this is going to be great. And again, the man said, no, that's, uh, I'm not, I'm out. That's not going to happen, Never. And upon asking him, well, why? why? What's your problem? Why aren't you going to go? The man said, because Jesus is coming back. And that was his response. Jesus is, is coming back. Now he goes on in this story to tell how God completely used that in the lives of those men that, that he had kind of confronted with that. 
But as Alistair Begg continued the sermon, he said, the reality is this. The reality is that any moment either Christ could return or we could be taken to him. And so we must live our lives in light of this reality. But again, making those presumptuous statements in our lives when we presume that we'll have a tomorrow. Again, maybe it's not an issue of, hey, having a tomorrow. Maybe it's just a simple issue of what I'm going to do with my tomorrow. You know, at times when I say, oh, yeah, Randy, that's great. We're going to go to that conference next year, and it's going to be awesome. I can't wait. So we're mentally preparing, planning for it, and we're being presumptuous in that because the truth is something could happen that, that God doesn't allow us to go to that conference. Maybe our, our vehicle could break down, or uh, I could lose my job and couldn't afford to go, or uh, my wife could get sick and I could say, hey, I can't go. Okay? We need to live our lives in such a way that says, hey, wait a minute, those plans that I have, Right? If God allows that, that might happen. If God allows that, it will happen. But, but it might not happen. Something else might occur. He could come back. I could go to be with him. I don't, I don't know. Again, that's what was missing. That's what is missing from the statement in verse 13. So in verse 15, James, he enjoins, that is commands, he enjoins correct thinking. He says, instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. So instead of saying, this is what I'm going to do, we should be saying, and you should be saying, that's what James is saying, you should be saying, you know, if God permits me, I'm going to do this. If God permits me, I'll wake up tomorrow and I'll go to Oklahoma City and I'll eat that sandwich from Chick-fil-A, or I'm not going to do that tomorrow, but whatever the case might be, right? If God permits me and Randy, we're going to go to that conference in March, right? If God permits us, we're going to meet back here on Wednesday at 7 o'clock for our Wednesday night Bible study and fellowship. If he permits us to do that, that's what we would like. Now, in giving this command, James isn't encouraging us to say some magic words that, that one, please God, and two, give us what it is we seek or desire. However, I think sometimes we think that that's the case. It's like praying in Jesus' name, right? It's like it's a magic formula. Like, like okay, so we're going to bring these requests before God, and as long as we say in Jesus' name, that's going to kind of, you know, have to twist his arm to, to you know, help us get what we we want to get, right? That's, that's it. So we've got to say in Jesus' name. Or when we're telling people we're going to do something, if we tell them, well, which is really just a false humility, but when you say, well, if God permits us to do it, if God wills, we'll get to do that. And again, it's almost used like a talisman, like a good luck charm, that in some way, if we get these words right, then God will actually you know, have to see it through um, uh, for us. Okay, here's the thing. In saying, if... God wills, okay? When we pray and we say in Christ's name, right, which, which is really just a, a statement submitting that to God's will, right? When you say, you know, in Jesus' name, amen, or I ask these things in Jesus' name, what you're really saying or what you should be saying and what should be the attitude of your heart is you should be saying, Jesus, if, if you will these things to be so, then let it be so. But ultimately, we're submitting this to 
your will. See, this saying should be a reflection of the heart and not mere acceptance of the truth. So again, James isn't just giving, hey, say these magic words, or when you say this, you know, say it this way, okay? No, what he's doing is he's saying that, you know what, when you, when you make plans, right, when you say, hey, we're going to do this or we're going to do that, okay, you need to say, if God wills, we're going to do this, right? But you need to say that because that's a reflection of what's in your heart. I mean, do you really desire that, right? Because you should, right? You really should be submitting it to God's will. You know what? If God wills, we're going to do this. If God wills, we. If God wills, I. And if he doesn't, then like the hymn we just sang, right? It's well with my soul. That has to be the attitude of the heart. And that's what James is addressing here, the attitude of the heart. The attitude of the heart of the person who was saying, hey, we're going to go in this town and we're going to make a profit and then we'll go into the next and we'll do it again, right? That person wasn't a, if God wills. God's will was out of the picture for them. That's what they willed for themselves. Now, the statement that the Lord wills, right? I mean, that's a true statement, right? If God wills, we'll all meet here, or those who are going to meet here will meet here on Wednesday, right? If God wills, we'll meet back here on next Sunday. Okay, that's a true statement. Okay, so one, it doesn't matter if you believe it or don't believe it, okay? If God doesn't will for none of us to be back here on Sunday, maybe the place is going to burn down. I don't know. But if God doesn't will for us to be here next Sunday, regardless of whether or not you believe it or don't believe it, it'll come to fruition. Nobody will be here, okay? And that doesn't even matter if you're a believer or a non-believer, okay? If God wills something for the non-believer, you can deny his existence uh, uh, every day of your life with all your breath, with everything you are, and it doesn't really matter whether or not you deny it or embrace it. If he wills it, it will be so, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you believe. Now, what we believe, however, does affect how we live. The one proclaiming in verse 13, hey, we're going to go into this town and we're going to do this, right? Effectively denied, right? Well, if God wills, we're going to do this, right? Now, the truth was, is if God willed, they would go into that town and they would make a profit and then they'd go into the next and they'd make a profit, right? Though they effectively denied it, okay, even though it was still true, their thinking and their beliefs ultimately, or their belief ultimately in their own, I guess, autonomy, if you will, still affected how they lived. So what we believe affects how we live. It doesn't affect the truth, though. In this passage, James is addressing professing believers. I think he's addressing those of us who are characterized by this attitude of presumption. I mean, characterized. I mean, this is how we've been living our lives, maybe. That God's not a part of that plan or that part of that picture for you. Right? Maybe it's just been a, a, a struggle um, for the past several years or months or, or, or just now becoming a struggle that this is it. This is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to go forward with it. Right? And you're torn up about that, and you're struggling with that. It's a... It's a um, Recurring sin, if you will, for you that you're dealing with. Something that I've dealt with in the past. I'm going to make this plan, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. uh, Maybe God wants, I don't know what God wants, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to go forward with it as though it's going to happen. All right. 
I think, I think for those who fall in that category, this is, is really a sin of commission because there's an intentional um, denying, if you will, the sovereignty of God in our lives and in what's going to happen in our lives. And there's those of us or times in our lives where this is less a sin of commission but more a sin of omission, right? Where someone says, hey, let's go do this. Yeah, it sounds good. Let's go do it. So we make our plans. We go do it. Hey, it was great. We had a good time. Everything was finished. Wound up to be successful. But that whole process, we never once considered God's will in that. I mean, looking back, we could say, well, yeah, it was God's will, right? Because it actually came to pass. And God's will will come to pass. And whatever comes to pass, we can say it's God's will. But through that whole process, we, we never actually stopped to consider and to say, you know what? One, is this what God wants us to do? Okay. How can we glorify God in this? Will we glorify God in this? What would he have us to do instead of this? So we, we fail to acknowledge him in that. Okay, so kind of two levels, if you will, of sin. Regardless of which position you find yourself in, maybe it's a struggle constantly, Maybe it's just something we fail to do. And I think for me that at times it's been a, a big struggle. And then more recently, it's probably been something that I just fail to do at times. Yeah, let's go to the conference, Randy. Let's have a great time. And we go to the conference and we come back. My wife had a terrible week. Wished I wouldn't have gone because she had a terrible week. And maybe before I went, I should have said, first of all, is this what, what God wants me to do? Is it going to glorify God when I do this? Should I submit this to his will? Should I evaluate it against that? I failed to do that. It's a sin of omission. So we make our plans. Submit those to God's will. If God wills, we're going to go to the conference. If God wills, on Tuesday, we're going to go to the BSU. He might not. But regardless of which you find yourself in, the call is the same, or the call is the same, and that's to submit. Ultimately, what we find in verse 13, the person who says, we're going to go to this town and we're going to do this. In our lives, when we make these presumptuous plans, okay, when we pursue worldly passions and desires that absolutely ignore God's desire for us, God's will for our lives, when we do that, it's ultimately a result of our unwillingness or our failure to submit to God. Our example is Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I didn't write the reference down, but I was thinking of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. If you're willing, let this cup pass from me. Right? But then he does what? He submits his own plans. Right? Submits his own desires 
the will of the Father and says, yet not my will, but yours be done. That's what was missing in the quote or the statement that James first gave us in, in verse 13. And at many times in our lives, that's what's missing as well, right? This is what I want. So God, I'm just going to pray it. I'm going to ask it. Sometimes I'm not even going to ask it and pray it. I'm just going to go do it and never even consider what your will is or what your will isn't. We see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. This is just one of many examples. Romans chapter 1. Verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul says, For God, whom I serve in, in my spirit, and the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how, in, how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. In numerous of Paul's uh, uh, letters, or numerous times in Paul's letters, he, he tells the church uh, that he's writing to, the individuals that he's writing to, say, I want to come see you. And I'm planning on coming to see you if God permits me to do that. If God wills, I'm going to come see you. The Apostle Paul was submitted to the will of the Father. We see it, David, in Psalm 40. Not only was David at this point in his life, and we all know we have those, those points in our lives when we resist and we sin, Right? But at this point in, in David's life, right, not only was he submitted to, to the will of the Father and, and filtering all of his desires and all of his wants and all of his plans right, through God's will, but he actually delighted or found delight in the will of the Father. Psalm 40, verse 8. And in 48, David says, I delight to do your will. A delight to submit to you. There is joy in my submission to you, Father. He says, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. So again, maybe it's just a sin of omission for you. Where you find yourself occasionally failing to stop and say, oh, wait a minute. If God wills it to be so, I'll see you guys on Wednesday. Right. If God wills it to be so, Randy, that's great. Let's do that conference. That'll be awesome. Right. If God wills it to be so, I'm going to go into this town and I'm going to make a profit. Maybe it's a sin of omission for you. Maybe it's a sin of commission and that you're actively fighting against the will of God. Actively failing intentionally failing out of a prideful heart to submit to him. You could be a believer and be in that case as well. I'm not saying you're not, okay? Um, there are times that we struggle with that. And, and when we find ourselves as believers in these periods of, of unrepentant sin, you can be assured that God's chastisement will be upon you, will be upon me find myself in that, okay? And he does that to bring us to repentance, right? And to restore us. So maybe you're in, in that category or maybe you're in neither category because you've never submitted to God's call to repent and to believe. 
But the thing is, regardless of where you find yourself, which cat, where am I? Is it, is it something that I just fail to do occasionally? That I'm just so wrapped up in self that I'm just being mindless and thoughtless and careless and not saying, God, I want to submit this to your will, but this is what I want to do. Okay, if you're in that spot or if you're actively as a believer, right, resisting, right, and failing to submit to God's will, if you find yourself there or if you are not a believer and you've never repented and submitted and turned to Christ in faith, regardless of where you find yourself, the thing is the call is the same and the response is the same, and that is to repent because it's sin for all of us. For the non-believer, it's sin. For the non-believer, it's sin not to repent and believe. Okay. For the believer who's actively fighting against the will of God, who's actively failing, intentionally failing to submit to God, it's sin. And the call is to repent. And then for those of us who, in our busyness of life, our selfishness of life, just fail to say, yeah, you know, if God wills it, we'll meet on Wednesday. Not just to say it, but to mean it again, right? An attitude of the heart, right? Now, I mean, that seems like a lesser sin than the others, doesn't it? Right, but it's sin. And so the call again is to repent. In verse 16, James explains, God through James, explains error as evil. He says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Now, the first point I said that James exposes error, right? The error of presumption, right? And the error of worldly pursuits, right? Well, I use the word error because it kind of worked with the, the whole outline thing of the ease and everything, right? But James exposes sin. That's what he does. And that's what he's doing in this passage. He's exposing sin and he's calling to repentance. And it's here in verse 16 that he explains that these errors... Okay, this presumption, uh, presumptuous boasting, if you will, this, this uh, pursuing worldly passions, pursuits, desires, pleasures, right? That it's sin is what it is. And again, he says in verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. You see, there's an arrogant boast and bragging in one's anticipated accomplishments when you fail to submit that planning, those things, to the will of God. So when we fail to submit to God, and yet we make our plans according to our will, our desires, it is arrogant, boasting, and bragging. It's, It's saying, God, I don't need you. I can do it myself. For those of you who have had children... You know what I'm talking about. Now, all of us have been children, and I'm sure as children, we've done this with our parents. I don't remember doing it, not because I didn't do it, because I can assure you that I did. It's just been a long time, and I don't remember. But I think of those many times when I'm trying to help my child do something, or I'm trying to point them in the right direction and doing something, and the response to me is, Dad, I don't need your help. I don't need you. I can do it myself. And usually that statement by one of my children is followed by catastrophic failure in whatever it is they're attempting to do. And so it is many times with us when we do this to God. When we fail to acknowledge him, when we fail to submit to him, right? When we fail to filter our plans, our life through God's will, 
We say, I don't need you. I can do it myself. And again, that's often followed by what? Catastrophic failure. Not necessarily from a physical, tangible way, from a spiritual way. God, these are my business plans and I'm going to do it and I don't need you. You might succeed and you might make a ton of money and have a lot of things and yet spiritually your life is a train wreck. Now, I think we see this put on display by Babylon and God's response to Babylon. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah 47 verses 7 through... 11. Yet you said, regarding what Babylon says, yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow, nor no loss of children. But these two things will come upon you suddenly in one day. Loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you, for you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. But evil will come on you. Which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. You see, boasting in anything other than God is evil. The word evil James uses is paneros. This word usually refers to a title, as in the evil or as in evil one. Uh, Matthew 6, 13, we won't go there, but the disciples' prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from paneras, evil, the evil one, referring to Satan. You see, when God is not the source or the recipient of our boasting, our planning, It is evil on par with Satan. Quite possible a reflection of demonic faith if you think back to James 2.19 where he addressed demonic faith which was what? It was that faith without works, right? It's where you proclaimed one thing and you lived another way. As did the individual who James or the individuals or us who James was addressing in this passage in verse 13 who proclaims Christ with their mouths and then yet says, and then I'm going to go to this city and I'm going to make a profit. Or I'm going to go to this conference and I'm going to do that, right? Proclaims Christ, but yet fails to include him in any of his plans. Now verse 17, James expands application. He says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, he expands beyond the scope of what he is addressing in verses 13 and 16. The word therefore in this sentence is crucial. This word links the preceding statement, 
the proceeding, sorry, statement, that is, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it. The word therefore links that statement to every imperative, to every command that James has given so far in this letter up to this point. Now, he's not just talking subjectively about, you know, well, you know what you should do and you shouldn't do it to him. That's kind of the key. Well, to him it's sin. Well, to me it's sin because I know that it was the right thing for me to do to, to, to go walk my dog that day when it was raining or whatever the case might be. I mean, we hear that sometimes. Well, that's sin for me, but it's not sin for you. Now, sometimes that can be true, right? I mean, we have these, these issues of conscience, right, where I might do something that, that um, violates my conscience, okay? Going to Walmart and buying a Snickers bar, okay, and eating that on the way home, right, might be a violation of my conscience because that's going to tempt me and entice me to actually eat the whole bag of Snickers bars that I buy. I know that sounds like a r- ridiculous example, but it, but it could quite possibly be so. We have these areas of, of gray, okay, where, um, you know what, if I did that, okay, that would violate my conscience. And if that violates my conscience, then that would be sin. But you could do that and not violate your conscience and not sin. That's not what James is talking about here, though, okay? Again, he's referring to every command that he has given so far in this letter. So how do we know what the right thing to do is? How do we know God's will? Can we? Well, of course we can, right? We know, we know what the right thing to do is because of Scripture, right? We know God's will because of Scripture, God's decreed will, right? The numerous verses in Scripture that say, for it is the will of God, right? That it is the will of God to submit to authority, 1 Peter chapter 2, right? That it is the will of God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to what, right? To, to abstain from sexual immorality, and to what? To be sanctified, okay? It says it explicitly that that is the will of God, right? Ephesians chapter 5, right? It's, it's the will of God for you to what? To be filled, controlled by, right? The Holy Spirit as to be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Again, God's decreed will where it specifically states or explicitly states for this is the will of God for you. Now, we also, and I'll also include in the decreed will of, God's, uh, will of God, all the imperatives or all the commands that we are given in Scripture. It says, do this, right? Don't do that, but instead do this. Again, it doesn't say for this is the will of God, but because it's a command given to us, right, through his word, it is explicitly the will of God for us to do that. So let's think back through James briefly and what he is addressing. Now, again, I'll just remind you in this, this letter that James wrote, okay, he gives a total of, I think I might be wrong, but I think it's close to 54 commands, 54 imperatives in this letter. And this in part, in part is what he's referring to when he says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin, Right? Uh, Chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. What's the right thing to do? What's God's will to do? Well, when you find yourself in a various trial, right? Consider it pure joy. 
That's the command. That's the imperative. That's God's will for your life. When you know the right thing to do, right, there's one of them, and you fail to do it, he says it's sin. James 1.22, right? Be a doer not, uh, of the word, not merely a hearer who deludes or deceives himself. So when we hear the word and we fail to do what it says, what does James say? He says it's sin. When you know the right thing to do, do the word. And when you don't do it, he says it's sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, when he says what? Show no partiality. That's the command. That's God's will. It's God's will for us to show no partiality. When we fail to do it, what does he say in verse 17? He says it's sin. Chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God. When we fail to draw near to God, what is it? It's sin. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Right? Repent. That's what he was saying in verse uh, 8 of chapter 4 again. And when we fail to do what we know we should do, again, it's sin. And in the case of this passage that we're, we're even considering now, right? He tells us not to boast about tomorrow, but instead to what? To submit to God's will. That's the right that we should do. How do I know what's right to do? Well, he says it right here. And when we fail to do that, it's sin. You see, when we know God's will, his decreed will, through scripture, his, his multiple commands for us and how we should live our lives, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, when we know God's will, when we know what we're commanded to do, and when we fail to do it, that's what James is saying in, in 17 here, okay? And again, this moves even beyond the scope of this letter, all of scripture. When we know God's will, and we fail to do it, it's sin. There's no excuses. There's no exceptions. There's no getting around it. There's no, but it, it, was, it was him. I didn't know it was, it's sin. Let's pray. Father, um, oh, in so many ways, God, I, um, I am guilty of doing the things that James is commanding and has commanded through this entire letter of not doing. God, I am guilty um, of presumption in my life, in my planning, and presuming and assuming that I'm guaranteed something when I'm, when I'm not. Father, I am guilty of failing to submit all of my planning, all of my thinking, all of my life to you. Father, I'm guilty of failing to filter everything through your will. And I don't, I don't want that, Lord. God, I want it to be the sincerest desire of my heart to see your will done in my life and through my life, whatever that might be, good or bad. And Father, that is my desire for this body as well, for this church. God, that as individuals 
and as a church family, Lord, that we would submit entirely to you, that every aspect of our lives would be filtered through your will, and that we would come to you, Lord, and that we would joyfully say, God, this is what we want, this is what our plans are, but not our will, but yours be done, and when it doesn't work out as we would desire, Lord, that it would be with joy and peace that we can say it as well with our souls. Because we know that your will is perfect. So forgive me, Father, when I fail to do this. And God, I pray for conviction um, for me and for us when we fail to do this. Jesus, we do love you. I love you. And I do want to see you glorified and lifted up and exalted. And I want that, Father, to be the desire not only of my heart and my life, but of this, of this body. And so, Lord, it is true when I say, Jesus, I ask these things in your name, in submission to your will and for your glory. It is a true statement. And I want it always to be a true statement in my life and all of our lives.